You hear it, don't you? It's in the song. No? Okay. Well, just look at the album art. It's right there on the sleeve. All the clues are there. Begin with the cover of Abbey Road. The Beatles, crossing a street in London. It's a funeral procession. In the front is John. The white suit marks him as God. Ringo follows, wearing a preacher's old-fashioned frock coat. And after him comes Paul, replacement Paul, wearing the suit you'd see on a corpse. He's out of step with the others, and shoeless, because the dead don't need shoes. And holding a cigarette, often called a coffin nail, in his right hand. But Paul was left-handed. George is last, bringing up the rear because his work shirt and jeans indicate that he's the gravedigger. Now you're getting it. Still no? Okay, play Strawberry Fields Forever. What's it saying at the end? I'm very bored. No. Cranberry sauce? Nah, not at all. All wrong. The voice is saying, I buried Paul. At least, that's what I hear. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, the supposed death of Paul McCartney and subsequent cover-up and replacement with the double, where did the theory begin? And why wasn't it immediately dismissed by Beatles fans? Why confirmation bias and reflection on 60s counterculture don't explain away this theory? After the break, we follow the clues and get in on the secret as we discover our fascination with the death of Paul McCartney. Howdy, theoryologists. Paul McCartney is dead. That's right. He died in 1966, rather rock star spectacularly, in a car crash, and was replaced, without the public knowing, by a lookalike with equal musical ability. Aside from the fear of lost revenue, this was apparently done out of concern for the potential suicides that might occur after news that a national treasure had been lost. Of course, the ruse was eventually discovered and disclosed by 1969, around the same time the news was spreading that the band was breaking up, when articles began circulating in college newspapers. 
Later that same year, it reached broad public knowledge when the news was broadcast by a Detroit radio station. Apparently, the truth was available all along through clues left by the guilt-ridden bandmates themselves on album covers and in song lyrics. Now, before we dive into uh, some of these uh, uh, key aspects, let's get into a bit of the uh, background of the Beatles themselves. For any of y'all under the age of 25 that may only have a very cursory knowledge of the Beatles. First, here's the wiki definition. The Beatles were an English rock band formed in, in Liverpool in 1960. Key members, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. Yes, there was a, a previous, there were previous uh, uh, names in the lineup, but this is, these are the four band ma- members that uh, are, became widely regarded as the foremost and, and influential music band, uh, really, of, of modern day. They're rooted in uh, a few different sounds, including uh, skiffle and beat and 1950s rock and roll. The Beatles later experimented with several musical styles. They ranged from pop ballads and Indian music to psychedelic and hard rock, often incorporating classical elements and unconventional record techniques um, as, as, they, uh, as the music grew and expanded. By uh, 1963, the enormous popularity first emerged as Beatlemania. As the music grew in sophistication, led primarily by songwriters John Lennon and Paul McCartney, the band were integral in the pop music evolution and into an art form and to the development of the counterculture of the 1960s. Now, that definition I gave you is pretty much the standard accepted definition of the Beatles. Um, And we won't go further into that. You know, every Beatles fan is going to have their story. They're going to have their their first experience. They're going to have their first exposure to the Beatles and what it meant to them. And I encourage you, if you aren't familiar with the Beatles, which I don't know that you would have listened to this episode if you weren't at all familiar with the Beatles, but go back and, and find something and listen. Um, you know, it's all great stuff. And all the, even though today it, it will be hard to kind of grasp what made them so drastically different. But we'll get into that some. Uh, First, let's talk about the background of this rumor itself. Now, really, rumors of Paul McCartney's death were circulating uh, in 69, um, early on. And that may have come initially out of news of these strained relationships going on in the Beatles. Uh, Mind you, they'd had a very, very busy decade um, and, and some of the, some of the stress that, that we're all too familiar with now with bands, uh, was being felt within the group and it was really becoming public knowledge. Um, now written versions of, of this news, aside from just mild discussion, started appearing really in the fall of 1969 in college newspapers where, of course, a lot of this music was just being played regularly off of uh, college radio and in college papers. Now, the story took off, I mean, huge, when a radio station in Detroit uh, with a DJ named Russell Gibb um, 
received a strange phone call from a guy that only identified himself as Tom. The that this Tom caller uh, told Gibb that Paul McCartney had died in 1966 and was replaced by a lookalike. Now, of course, uh, this was um, you know this this took off, uh, and and in in this conversation, Paul described that uh, how the Beatles had subsequently left clues on their album about the deception and that he went into some detail claiming that the cover photo of Abbey Road, which had at the time was the most recent album, uh, Beatles album release, represented a funeral procession with, uh, you know, John as the minister, Ringo the undertaker, Paul the corpse, and George the gravedigger. Um, he also indicated that other Beatle, Beatles albums contained clues, uh, along with several of the songs, and that they could be deciphered in some cases either through just listening to a mumble or that the album had to be played backwards. Now, Gibb related the rumor um, of Paul's death on air. Now, mind you, you know, what are you, you're thinking, well, how did this take off? And actually, we're talking about 1969. I was looking at, that was my first question, was how did a local DJ um, set, set a wildfire like this? Actually, this uh, show and its broadcast reached about 38 states, and we're talking Detroit. So it, it reached a huge swath, a huge area that spread rather quickly. Now, shortly after... Um, this um, this radio broadcast. One of the key things that filled in after after this call planted the seeds was a another uh, uh, college paper article that that really filled in and and fleshed out the uh, the details behind this. The guy's name was uh, 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 let's see Labor, and he wrote. He wrote a, a, an obituary, it really tongue-in-cheek, and released it. And it was in the, the Michigan Daily, which is in the University of Michigan uh, newspaper. And it was two days after the Gibb call. So he writes this, this obituary and really fleshes out some of the key aspects of the story, um, repeating some of the elements that had been discussed on Gibb's radio show and then taken through with with further imagination uh he he discussed the and divulged the identity of paul's replacement a guy named william campbell and he asserted that the uh, uh walrus was an image of death stating that the walrus is greek for corpse i mean as an example of the sort of the things he stated uh, we don't have to keep going into all of this uh but down in the the, the show notes i'm going to have a link to some full discussion on and description on how this this uh, uh, rumor started to play out, you know. Of course, as we get into criticisms, it was denied completely right off the bat. I mean, from the very beginning, the Beatles, none of the members, surviving members, uh, ever acknowledged the rumor to be true, and even Fred Labor, this this writer. Um, at the University of Michigan, he came right out and said it. he made it up. I mean, it was part of the fun. It was it was a college publication, and he was playing up on the the uh, pace and the hype of this radio call. 
Um, now, from a from a textbook perspective on how this is explained uh, to have caught hold, you know, it's it's simply dismissed as a as a case of confirmation bias, but that doesn't explain why anyone would want to find confirmation in McCartney's death and where that bias would come from. So now that we've talked a bit about that background and we know that this was denied wholeheartedly, um, let's get into the theoriology. You know, of course, this is where we get into the influences and the mindsets that really underlie the success of this rumor. You know, understanding of the frenzy that followed the Paul is dead rumor has actually been very widely pursued. And, and I found multiple discussions and lots of reasons given. Much of it is based on 40 plus years of hindsight and the separation from the researchers and the readers from the personalization of Beatlemania. You know, commonly this, this stir is attributed to a public awareness that things were not going well with the Beatles. You know, their last concert was held in October of 66. There was the, also it's attributed to the anti-establishment sentiment of the era. And I think anybody remotely familiar with the uh, late 1960s and early uh, 70s um, understand what I'm talk what they're talking about there with the idea of that sentiment. Uh, there's even discussion for the limits of the counterculture movement and the use of music as a counter to the political reality at the time. Uh, most noticeably it, uh, and notably, it's attributed as a, a perfect lesson in confirmation bias, uh, which, of course, confirmation bias uh, is see the seeking of, of proof uh, for only what we've already decided to be true. And in doing that, we open ourselves up to unlimited errors of thought. Now, this is the thing that caught my attention the most, because the idea that this is a great lesson in confirmation bias uh, leaves out a, a, a key aspect for me, a key question. If everybody is seeking proof for something that they've decided to be true, why in, an, in this time frame with the most popular band in the world with uh, personalities that were beloved. Why would anyone decide that to, to accept the idea that uh, Paul McCartney had not only died, but died years before, and that that was an acceptable uh, process, thought process to, to, to move forward with? So, as I started chasing this question, um, I needed to look at really an understanding of what Beatlemania actually was, where it came from, and what it meant to for the pu public to be consumed by this idea of, of Beatlemania. Well, discovered that uh, the phrase was coined in the Daily Mirror uh, in an article back in 1963, so very early on. Uh, in the uh, uh, Beatles premiere, it was a, it was of course a time of, of tremendous economic prosperity in the West, 
And for a lot of the listeners, the Beatles uh, were a very optimistic, upbeat sound that suited the era and suited the time frame as a soundtrack for everything going on. But, you know, this doesn't really fully explain this, this mass pathology that the Beatles inspired. I mean, to the point that at concerts, teenage girls ha had fainting episodes of weeping um, and uh, in mass uh, huge huge fanatic behaviors even uh, battalions of policemen hurting kids behind fences and barricades and of course screaming lots and lots of screaming this was noted over and over again in these discussions it was more than a little disconcerting uh, journalists were comparing the sounds made at Beatles concerts to the nerve-shredding cries of pigs being brought to slaughter or the screech that the New York City subway trains made as they grind along the rails. Uh, when the group played Shea Stadium in 65, the New York Times even reported that the crowd's immature lungs produced a sound so staggering, so massive, so shrill and sustained that it crossed the line from enthusiasm into hysteria and soon it was in the area of the classic Greek meaning of the word pandemonium, the region of the demons. <laughs> so so that should give you a, a, an idea of what Beatlemania was. They, they were hugely influential and impactful and this was a fandom that really the world hadn't seen before, though there are some examples of, of worldwide fame and artists before and since, of course. And but but the Beatles and, and Beatlemania and the, the influence that it had in pop culture is what has given rise to the use of take your pick mania going forward as we've seen any sort of frenzied fandom. It really stems from this. Now, now that we understand the, the extreme uh, fanaticism of Beatlemania, you know, the extreme intensity, then let's look into a bit of what that means and explore fandom from that sense. Really, fandom is, is this being fascinated by and attracted to celebrities. Uh, and, and it's not obviously a new or abnormal perspective, um, but researchers uh, uh, have coined the term parasocial interaction. They did so back in the 1950s to describe the relationships that people felt they shared with uh, their the early television performers and personalities. Uh, the, the research suggested that for young people, the parallels between their feelings for celebrities and their feelings for people in their own lives uh, can play a, a role in developing their conception of self and their perception of relationships. Uh, there was a, a, a human communication research study uh, survey where they, uh, they spoke to young adults and found that 90% felt a strong attraction to a celebrity at some point in their lives, and 75% reported strong attachments to more than one celebrity. 
another study found that 30% of young people expressed a desire to actually be the celebrity. And, you know, we, actually that's only grown since then. You know, since then, of course, this, uh, this growing sense of proximity uh, through two celebrities through social media you know, it, it's it's actually not as easy to dismiss these aspirations to fame as delusional because people people are making more and more connections. But let's get back to the 1960s. You know, before social media, uh, fans that wanted to interact with celebrities had to be far more enterprising in order to reach them. I mean, you had to develop fan clubs, find P.O. boxes to send fan mail, or buying concert tickets and attempting to get backstage, which took a lot of effort. All of this helped to grow this, this perception of connection uh, and, and personal relationship and interaction. How does that work with the Beatles? Well, mind you, these fans were at a level that no one had ever seen, and therefore their connection was at a level that superseded simply just, uh, you know, a, a close connection or a close relationship. These were their best friends. These were the, the uh, musicians, the, the band were, were the guys that understood them the most, you know, that every song was written for them. Every, every lyric spoke to their life. You know, the music was the background and the soundtrack to everything going on around them. So now that we've understood Beatlemania and taken that a step further into what that fandom does in terms of that concept of relation, uh, relationship uh, to and relating to these celebrities, let's get into the discussion of secrets. Now, this is where this will all start to, to coalesce and explain the Paul is dead rumor. So let's look at secrets and the concept of being the last to know. Uh, now, when you are left out of a secret by a close friend or family member, your reality about the relationship you thought you had instantly changes. And this comes from a uh, an, the author of... Uh, a book called Type S Superwoman, Finding the Life in, in Work-Life Balance. Now, of course, this is talking specifically about relationships uh, with your friends, co-workers, but um, this is very applicable here. Now, the way you, that you view this person and your relationship with them changes, becomes different. You start to feel a loss anger, jealousy, and, and you have to figure out how to deal with it. So part of the reason for feeling betrayed has to do with the bonding that comes from sharing secrets in the first place. And this from neuropsychologist uh, Rick Hansen, who was the author of Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. So secrets stem from our deep need to connect and confide in other people. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Hansen said the two great themes in human life are autonomy and intimacy. On the one hand, we think I've got to be me, but then there's also this need to be part of we. Okay, so 
the fact of the matter is secrets have a, a profound impact in how we view our relationships and how the bonds develop between people. And we're not talking about huge secrets necessarily, but you know, the examples I come across, of course, take your pick. You're in a situation you find out from your best friend that you were the last to know that she was pregnant, you know, or that someone, your friend is moving, got a new job and is, and is headed out. And it seems like everybody found out before you. Now, there's any number of reasons that you didn't find this information out before, but, but you know, at a psychological level, you're simply hurt uh, because you didn't know, because you had a, a perception that you would know before anybody else because of your connection to this very close friend or family member. And it's, it's going to change regardless of the reason your, your dynamic and, and your understanding of your relationship has changed. So let's, let's pull a lot of this together. Um, and, and, and I guess the last thing with that, with that secrets, as, as we, as we explain Paul is dead is, is that is understanding that when, we, when we're let in on something, we feel empowered and trusted. You know, that's, that's the sign of your integrity, of your honor. It shows uh, that you do esteem yourself and, and that you're, and, and it's really a good thing. Um, but but it, it goes another direction uh, when you find out that you, at least that you perceive yourself as not being trusted. This is what's happened in Paul and is Paul, and Paul is dead. Uh, we've stepped through fandom, the impact of secrets, and Really, you have to look at the way it was presented and how this played out. Tom, the caller, when he called in to give show, didn't just say Paul was dead and leave it at that and hang up and they had a fun discussion and play some records backwards. He said, Paul is dead and you would know already if you were a super fan, the biggest fan. He said, it's all there. The secret was revealed all along as long as you love the Beatles as much as you say you do. So that's the key. First, in hearing the news that Paul McCartney died three years previously, and you were never told. The fans, the biggest fans, were not told. Not by the band, not by the record label, not by anyone. And there's a huge sense of betrayal. Well, if it was left at that, if it was simply betrayal, everybody would have reevaluated, reevaluated their relationship with the Beatles. They would have stepped back and said, well, maybe they're not the guys I thought they were. Maybe this is not the best band. And you would have had, you would think there would have been a slingshot reaction in, in the other way. People simply walking away, not even finding out if it's true or not, maybe even dismissing it as trivia, but, but subconsciously, psychologically, they would have taken that, that secret and the idea of the secret and even the possibility that it could be true as a betrayal. But that's, that's not where this ended. It actually took a step farther and went, no, 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 this is a secret that we've been sharing 
that we only wanted to share with our best fans, people that sat down and looked at every uh, every album cover and every detail and every clue. So if you are part of the inner circle, then you know this and we entrust you with this secret. Everybody else can dismiss it. The rest of the world doesn't need to know. Paul is dead. But you already knew that, didn't you? Now that is where we find the bias in confirmation bias. That gives us that foundation to say, yes, there is an outcome that now has value. Uh, a perception that something had changed within the band and you knew it all along because of your connection to the band. So, so no longer uh, are you betrayed, but you are in the inner circle. You are pulled in deeper to this close relationship that you have formed with the celebrity in this world of Beatlemania that, that extended beyond any level people had understood before. Now that we've really given a, some validity to the Paul is dead rumor, let's, let's look at it from an, an endurance test standpoint. Now, of course, how long has it already been around? Well, 65 years and counting. Now, this one really had its limelight for only a, a few weeks or months after the initial introduction. But, of course, the internet gave it new life. You know, has it had a large influence in popular culture and media? Well, I don't think the rumor itself hasn't. Uh, you know, the Beatles were the influence. And to attribute the impact uh, to a conspiracy theory would be disingenuous. Um, and so, let's look at, is it still relevant today? It is, of, of course, a relevant phenomenon in, in pop culture today. You know, it's a theory now that gets transferred from icon to icon as, as time passes. Uh, we've even seen it today uh, with, with some modern pop stars and the idea of replacements, of doubles, of deaths. Uh, so will it continue to capture public imagination going forward? You know, absolutely. I, I think Paul and Paul is dead is going to last so long as there's a, a Beatles album to discover out there for people. Uh, you know, while only the committed believers of, of Paul is dead uh, that were themselves original Beatles maniacs uh, still attempt to make the case you know, the phenomenon of Paul is Dead is still very much alive. As each generation discovers the Beatles for the first time, uh, they hear the rumor, often from a parent or a friend that introduced them to the music. In the first place, the secret is, is shared then with a new fan. And now the inner circle has one more member, and the connection continues. Uh, of course, even the Beatles were going to have a lifespan. I mean, as they move farther into pop culture history, the rumor will devolve into trivia and even forgotten lore. Uh, it may be rekindled when Sir Paul McCartney passes away, and there will be calls for DNA testing to verify his true identity, but probably not. Still, in an age where digital media is king and new music discovery is as simple as asking Siri to find something random and new, 
there is something truly appealing about holding a, a full record sleeve in your hands, focusing on the detail of the album art and trying to discover every nuance being revealed. And, and maybe that's the real secret of the Paul is Dead conspiracy theory. You know, the Beatles were talented and innovative. They got their fans to think outside the box. They changed the culture. And maybe they inspired us to become as creative and imaginative as they were. Well, thank you so much for joining me again today. Now, if you like what you hear, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. Connect with me at facebook.com slash theoryologypodcast, on Twitter at theoryologypod, or comment in the show uh, website at conspiracytheoryology.com. Conspiracy Theoryology is written and produced by me, Ryan Nelson. Music is by Adam Henry Garcia. If you'd like to hear more of Adam's music, visit at adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. You can also find a link to that on the show website. All right, theoriologists and beetle maniacs alike, until next time, cranberry sauce.